Welcome to the Galley Beggar podcast. We're in week six of lockdown here in Norwich. It's still quiet here, and you may be able to hear the birds singing outside my window as I speak, which is one reason to have some hope. I've also got something good to share. It's a reading from Preeti Taneja, the author of We That Are Young. I'm guessing that for most people listening to a Galley Beggar podcast, Preeti needs no introduction. She's the author of We That Are Young, after all, and that wonderful novel is more than enough. Although, of course, there is a lot to say about Preeti. She's a fine scholar. She teaches creative writing at the University of Newcastle. She's the co-founder of Visual Verse, a long-standing and brilliant online project that brings new writing from around the world to new audiences every month. She's also a passionate human rights advocate and, as you are about to hear, a superb speaker. She's so good that I won't actually say any more because Preeti says everything better. I just need to quickly note that I've included information about Jeet Dale and Fulcrum and the writers Preeti mentions in the show notes so you can seek them out for yourself. And after hearing this, you'll want to. I have been reading a lot in these last weeks and mostly from one book. It is the fourth edition from 2005 of Fulcrum, which describes itself as an annual of poetry and aesthetics. It was given to me by the writer Jeet Thail at his family home in Bangalore, India, in 2018. I last saw Jeet at the last public event I attended before the UK's pandemic lockdown. It was in London for a memorial. After the service, we drank and talked and mingled briefly in the crowd. We parted without saying goodbye. So this book as an object holds layers of meaning memories of travel and of both happy and sad times spent with friends. Perhaps that's why now, when we can't go out, can't meet to talk in person, I return to it almost every day. Thayil curated half of the book, the section on India. In it, he brings together 56 poets from across the world, all connected by two things. They have South Asian roots and they all write in English. It is to this section I gravitate. In his introductory essay, One Language Separated by the Sea, Thayil writes about the position of English in India and of the elite class of writers who work in their language. They were perceived as inauthentic both by Indian writers working in vernacular languages and by white British writers, for example, Yeats. As the translator of Rabindranath Tagore, Yeats loved the Bengali's work, but when Tagore began to write in English, Yeats announced... No Indian knows English. Nobody can write music and style in a language not learned in childhood and ever since the language of his thought. This despite that Yeats himself wrote in English, his own mother tongue was Gaelic. Fayil's rejection of such an authenticity as a category of literary value is important. It challenges us to think less about the centre and diaspora and more about multiple centres marked by shared ways of speaking. He writes that Indian poetry, wherever its writers are based, should really be perceived as one body of work. And he begins to do this, using as a loose marker the partition of India. He selects his poets from India and all over the world, but does not arrange them chronologically. Instead, he says, vertically, a range of voices, genders, geographies and generations a class spectrum, all only separated by the sea. The section is called Give the Sea Change and It Shall Change. 
All of these writers are dedicated to a poetic craft that they will make and remake as their own. Their work articulates both similarity and difference at the same time, regardless of official nationality. I am reading this book as a talisman. I want to spend this time with my lyrical ancestors and peers. Our textual strategies build on each other's. An attention to the mixing of tongues, to oral, as in heard, puns. The first Indian English poem we have was published in 1827. Its writer, Henry de Rosio, who is also Hafiz, writes the lines, Without thy dreams, dear opium, without a single hope I am. Spicy scent, delusive joy, chillum hither, lao, my boy. It's in the last line that Thayil makes the connection, reminding us that hither derives from the Old English hida, but implies Hindi's idhar, which means the same thing. The line could, as he notes, have been written yesterday, or today, or tomorrow. So I also want to cast forward in my poet's widened jeet selection to include more, almost the same, but different writers sailing this craft further in recent years. First, I'm going to introduce you, in Jeet's words and their own, to three poets in the book whose words particularly resonate with me now, and then to three women's voices that I would include in my fantasy fulcrum chapter. I'll finish with a piece of my own. Nisim Ezekiel was born in Bombay in a tiny community of Marathi-speaking Bene Israeli Jews, descendants of Galilean oil presses who were shipwrecked off the Maharashtra coast around 150 BC. His father was a professor of botany and his mother was the principal of a school. His first book of poems, with its premonitory title, A Time to Change, 1952, signalled the arrival of modernism in Indian poetry and delayed post-independence awakening to the possibilities of direct speech. His subjects were Bombay and himself in iambic lines that charted marriage, adultery and fatherhood. He wrote comic poems in exaggerated Indian English, latter-day psalms in a language influenced by the Bible, poems that made use of his experiments with spirituality, philosophy and LSD, and a steady number of love poems. He became the face of Indian poetry, both in the country and abroad, creating a model for the Bombay school with urbanity and early use of form. He died in Bombay. Poem of Dedication The view from basement rooms is rather small A patch or two of green, a bit of sky Children heard but never seen An old wall Two trees, a washing line between Windows with high curtains to block the outward eye It seems that nothing changes, nothing grows But suddenly the mind is loosed of chains and purifies itself before the warm Mediterranean which fills the veins to make the body beautiful and light. Heaviness of limbs or soul can mimic calm. I close the eyes to see with better sight. There is a landscape, certainly. The sea, among its broad realities, attracts, because it is a symbol of the free, demoniac life within, hardly suggested by the surface facts. And rivers, what a man can hope to win, by simple flowing, learning how to flow, and trees imply an obvious need of roots, besides that all organic growth is slow. 
both poetry and living illustrate. Each season brings its own peculiar fruits, a time to act, a time to contemplate. The images created try to change, not to seek release but resolution, not to hanker for a wide godlike range of thought, nor the matador's dexterity. I do not want the yogi's concentration. I do not want the perfect charity of saints, nor the tyrant's endless power. I want a human balance, humanly, acquired, fruitful, in the common hour. This Elizabeth is my creation, stated in the terms of poetry. I offer it to you in dedication. Srikanth Reddy's parents emigrated from rural Andhra Pradesh to Chicago, where in 2005, when this was written, they still lived and practiced medicine. He was born in Chicago in 1973. His poems reconstruct history from the debris and from the random imagined text of a collapsed world. They use a weird collection of materials, outdated school books, whimsical instruction manuals, stray pages, and sacred texts. His dry titles, Facts for Visitors, Fundamentals of Esperanto, do not hint at the emotion and narrative drive in the verse. He was, in 2005, the Moody Poet-in-Residence at the University of Chicago. Burial Practice Then the pulse, then a pause, then twilight in a box, dusk underfoot, then generations. Then the same war by a different name, wine splashing in a bucket, the erection, the era, then exit reason. Then sadness without reason, then the removal of the ceiling by hand, then pages and pages of numbers, then the page with a faint green stain, then the page on which Prince Theodore, gravely wounded, is thrown onto a wagon then the page on which Masha weds somebody else, then the page that turns to the story of somebody else, then the page scribbled in ductiles, then the page which begins Exit Angel, then the page wrapped around a dead fish, then the page where serfs reach the ocean, then a nap, then a peg, then the page with a curious helmet, then the page on which millet is ground, then the death of Ursula, then the stone page they raised over her head, then the page made of grass which goes on, exit beauty, then the page someone folded to mark her place, then the page on which nothing happens, the page after this page, then the transcript knocking within, interpretation, then harvest, exit want, then a love story, then a trip to the ruins, then and only then the violet agenda, then hope without reason, then the construction of an underground passage between us. My final fulcrum poet is Mukta Sambrani, born in Pune in 1975. Mukta Sambrani's poems from Broom Rider's Book of the Dead are notable for their extreme strangers. The book-length sequence is presented as the working manuscript of its fictional protagonist, Anna al-Bukhar, whose project is to renegotiate the idea of authorship. 
There are asides, hesitations, false starts, instructions to the reader, and throughout, a steadfast regard for language. Her first book, The Woman in This Poem Isn't Lonely, was received in India with incomprehension and admiration. She moved to the United States in 1999 and lives in Berkeley, California. The Insurgence of Colour, or Anna Thinks Anne Carson is God, no smaller than Marx. Anne Carson lives in Canada, in Greece, in Rome and in China. Mothers of gods everywhere suffer prolonged pregnancy and unnatural labour. In the hours following the bloodshed, the emperor mourned alone. That he was always a pacifist in spirit did not go down in history. The scholar, the scribe, the teacher, the writer and the world are one. What is the language of mythology? What do gods say to each other? Each petal gleams, enhances its hue on its way to her hair or his book. When revolution came, it took everything and dyed the streets red. The resurgence or movement led by crazy militant forces will be crushed. In the early hours of the morning, the following day, there will be executions. In the debris of the aftershocks, they recovered Brahma from Vishnu's navel. The tropics are in the process of being cleansed, so eternal power may prevail. Mothers of gods everywhere suffer prolonged pregnancy and unnatural labour. This poem is a compilation of issues it attempts to address through false starts. When the poem found itself, the sky turned. Colours of empires come from blood. The revolutionary in hiding clenches the future in his fist along with a hand grenade. My mother and her mother and her aunt are one. They follow the sacrosanct. I believe Anne Carson will prevail as the petals in this book begin to turn fire to light. What is wrong with Anna? She couldn't say. She has Marquet de Sade syndrome. She imagines she lives this life. It isn't real, you know. This is what they call it. It is a rare and protein disease, although disorder, she is told, is a better word for it. It is all about perspective, like Ishmael says. The mob did not stop hitting you till after you were dead. The moon sank to the bottom of the ocean and didn't rise for several nights. The mob left all the dead in shallow graves. The police had them thrown into the valley under the blue cliff. It turned red and then brown and then yellow and green from the festering. They planted a flag over the valley, the city filled with the dead. They kept walking round in circles in the night looking for home. Anna went looking for the driver. She had to borrow breathing apparatus from the fire department to step in. She lowered herself on a makeshift rope pulley. She stepped on something green. It was familiar. The driver hung by his arms from a yellowing tree. His shoulders had become dislocated, but his hands remained firmly locked around the branch. He had made one last attempt to break his fall. Then she walked to his house. The family came to the door. There was no use cremating him. There are too many. The broom rider stole a petrol truck that night. She drove it into the valley. Then she climbed out and threw her cigarette stub into the gorge. The broom rider mourns the happy dead. 
Learn to drive trucks, every talent counts, from broom rider's guide to broom riding. The reader probably knows by now that Anna is attempting to write a book of books. Anna wants to know of any readers she may have confused. Has she? Are there many readers then, and what do they think of her? Do they think she is in convalescence, emerging from ennui or trauma or both? What is this place she writes from? There is more than one place for sure. The writing is so different everywhere. Don't you feel like telling Anna a thing or two about consistent punctuation? This is what Anna wants. She wants to convey the splitting and she wants your participation. In Mukta Sambrani's work, I find the kind of clever, beautiful play with language and sense and a sense of resistance that delights me. But what my choices also have in common is that sense of striving for connection, for community, a sharing in language, but also ritual and a commitment to craft. Subtly, the writing brings East and West into conversation at the sentence level. New formations for wholeness are created. I find none more powerful and present exploration of this than in the pamphlet Threads by Sandeep Parma, Bhanu Kapil and Nisha Ramaya, published by Clinic in 2018. Threads is a series of linked works in which three multilingual writers with Indian heritage weave their work into a shared thought experiment on what it means to be a nomadic I. Transgressing many worlds and times and majority white spaces as their many tongues, English-speaking female brown-skinned selves. The three writers think individually and together about race, representation and writing, and theirs is a lyric of the avant-garde, an unequivocal poetics of love. In their dialogue, as Ramaya notes, the three create a fourth space that enables their relationship apart from the places they share. They bring together voices, memories, questions and styles, a collaboration that resists forced and fixed equivalents based on origins and finalities, such as place of birth and international arrival. She writes that their collaboration allows them to move away from each other and return to themselves. But what about then reaching back and crossing again to the other? My own encounters with whiteness as an ideology, not only as skin colour, push me to write from that point of view, the so-called centre of power. I want to raise that disgrace to the light and raise it to the ground. I want to understand the mechanics of shame as they are used for control. My way, to, as Bardo Kapil writes, avert the icy feeling. In my novel, We That Are Young, published by Gallibaga Press in 2017, I translate Shakespeare's King Lear to contemporary India, his language in new old forms. I take a family of wealthy Hindu Indians as the true inheritors of empire's worst ravages to speak to the rise of fascism in India today. Shame, I think, begets shame until something breaks that cycle. Sometimes, all that it takes is a gesture, a touch, first violence, then kindness, a theme I am also thinking about a lot right now. I'm going to finish by reading a piece that I wrote for the pamphlet Detour, commissioned by the small press Les Fugitives. The piece simply presents a white woman being bandaged up in a hospital emergency room by a brown-skinned nurse. It was published by Hotel Cordell in late 2019. The set theme was debt, 
and the piece with an oral accented pun is called Dead Night. In A&E with a compound fracture, left arm, split skin, I think I can see my bone splintering out of me. Oh Lord, and what happened here? You ask my arm. Your badge says Manpreet. Your uniform is dark blue. The usual Friday brouhaha's going just beyond. The curtain you have pulled around us. I am a pale, damp mess on the hospital bed. Tearful, my hair is so tangled. I pulped, split lip. I need your touch to be mothering. I need... Nurse, I say. He is dead. I may as well have killed him. I left his body in the street. Oh Lord, and look at you. I take a deep breath. It's not like me to spill. It hurts and you are holding my wrist. Your brown hands, your mint breath, your curvy grips, your neat dark hair like wire and the white bandage and my bones sticking through. I see it. Oh Lord, speak to me if you can. I own up. I own a pup. I was meant to take him, Ezra, for a walk. He didn't want to. He's a three-legged dashend, a good boy who likes to lick my left wrist. Oh Lord, and you are with me. Your voice sets my head ringing, pain clashing, ward noise, and the curtain cannot protect me from the screaming. Somewhere someone is hurting. It's me, it's not me. When he was rescued, hospital, like for doggies, they used to force him to run after the other pups, and that was his whole puphood. That was all he knew. The memory pounded into him too, by the flat of hands on his back and snout, teaching him, pound for pound, what his worth was. Oh Lord, and how should we know? I learned that myself at sweet sixteen, still had a lisp then, fell in love, trying to speak through a fringe and a lisp. I burned for that man, the flat of the hand, the teeth and the lips. Ezra looked at me with his eyes and his nose and his ears seemed to look at me the way dog ears do, you know? He weighed just a few pounds. I know the sensation of being cold all the time, of bones shivering, wanting to feel happy and be hopeful, but hungry and angry and hurt, pounding the streets, as they say, for work. I brought little brown Ezra for five good pounds and chose him for his ability to endure. I own that nothing was my own. Stupid hound, my skeleton sticking through my skin. Give a dog a ow, as in howl, that sound. Oh Lord, what is your name, says you. And now pain is making me sing. My lovely nurse, Poundland princess. Gold studs in your ears, your cartilage piercing. A silver bar, a streak of red dye in your coarse black hair. And a party of shadows dance across your cheeks. Will you cry? Make that sound of the elephant in the room. I was born in this hospital, you know, and I wonder if they still impound people with no papers these days. How long have you been here for, princess? I don't want to give you my words, my dog, my arm. Oh Lord, our precious bones, you say. You make marks on me with your bick. You whisper as if you think I cannot hear. Bus, I am tired. You are my last. My car's been impounded in fear. I must work extra hours to get out so I can get to work on time for my shifts and make a living in this franken place. Love, my head is pounding. I can't listen to your woes. Unless you're singing, Oh Lord, your speaky accent is ruining the strip-light joy of this moment, when a pound of your flesh all chock-chock-chip muffin could fill my mouth. Somewhere a siren and his name is ringing into me. Ezra, Ezra, 
Ezra, stupid hound. Oh, Lord, it's nearly over. Be kind, I want to order you. You owe it to your uniform, your badge. Should I be grateful you're here, Poundland? Nothing about you is your own, except maybe the jewelled collar around your neck on your nights off in town. I've seen you and your cousins together. Your name is a compound noun I can't pronounce and won't remember. You are doing a sterling job. Look at my arm, bound by you. It won't heal because of you, but despite you. I could be kind if you come closer, princess, compounding the sense that what we owe each other is eye contact, no more than that. Clinking pills in bottles are my nerves, that sound, jangling to his coming, when he comes, jangling, the sound of my man coming home. Oh Lord, and what then? Princess, are you finished when you ask me how I hit the ground? I must look like I've gone through ten rounds. You think he broke my bone? It was date night, and I fell, playing tennis with my shadow. Oh Lord, can you feel this? Tell me. He was high on the night. He downed what he could reach. He said he would take me out. I said no. He took the notes from my pocket, the change from my purse, emptied me. He laughed at my tears, kicked my poor pup. His fingers pinched me there. I cried out. Ezra barked, stupid hound. Oh Lord, move your hand. Ezra ran out. I was bleeding from my wound. I went running after him, couldn't find him. I ran. We were hit by the car, pup and me. Oh Lord, we're all done. And I was the driver's true love once. You think you can see the bruises in my shivers, my tears. Now you look at me. Your eyes are tired. Your small hand touches my face. It is warm, holds me dear. We stay. I'll pay you back one day. That was Pretty Teenager. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again with another podcast soon.